I've long thought that many of those hymns, especially like that one we just sung, uh, could only be written by an individual who truly knows Christ. Uh, you, you couldn't possibly pen that uh, in human wisdom. Uh, you couldn't possibly consider the words in which that hymn reminds us of. But Jesus Christ uh, did those things, and he did those on behalf of sinners. And uh, I think it's, uh, it behooves us to understand that it wasn't because we deserved it, uh, but because of his great love toward us uh, that he died for us, and we're certainly thankful for that. Uh, we take the opportunity during this second service during our Sundays uh, to spend a, a great amount of time on the gospel, and uh, not that the gospel has not already been preached and proclaimed, but we do that on purpose. And we do that because we want to be sure that we fully understand that we are still called uh, to be uh, preachers of this gospel. Uh, when Jesus was dealing with his disciples, uh, we're going to be in John 13 this morning. Uh, when Jesus was dealing with his disciples, he was dealing with men who did not fully understand all of these things. Uh, you and I so quickly take for granted that uh, the, the truths that we know, the truths that we sing about, uh, the truths that we uh, somehow can uh, rationalize, the disciples were in a bit of confusion. Uh, they were not fully aware of everything that Jesus was talking about. And I think that's one of the things that makes uh, what we're going to deal with today uh, such a great reminder of the privilege we have, of the knowledge that we have. If you'll look there, John 13, look with me at verse number 33, and we're going to go down through verse number 38. So John 33, or John 13, verse 33 through 38. The Bible tells us this, Little children, yet a little while, while I am with you, ye shall seek me. And as I said unto the Jews, whether I go, ye cannot come, so now I say to you. A new commandment I give unto you, that ye love one another as I have loved you, that ye also love one another. By this shall all men know that ye are my disciples, if ye have love one to another. Simon Peter said unto him, Lord, whether goest thou? Jesus answered him, whether I go, thou canst not follow me now, but thou shalt follow me afterwards. Peter said unto him, Lord, why cannot I follow thee now? I will lay down my life for thy sake. Jesus answered him, Wilt thou lay down thy life for my sake? Verily, verily, I say unto thee, the cock shall not crow till thou hast denied me thrice. There's a couple of observations I want to make before we really get into uh, each of these in a verse by verse. I want you to notice the phrase that Jesus uses in verse 33. It's a new phrase. He calls them little children. Now, we read this today and we often glance so quickly that we don't stop and consider that this is the first time he's used this towards these disciples. Now, understand something that has happened. We've already studied this, but he doesn't use this terminology until Judas has now gone out from the other disciples. Jesus, as far as I know, did ne had never used the term little children while Judas was still in the midst with them. 
But as he uses it now, he is using it in a very tender and compassionate way because he's getting ready to now reveal to them some of the things that he had not yet fully explained to them. So he uses the term little children. We also notice in verse 33, he says, while I am with you, which tells us that Jesus is getting ready to go somewhere. Now, again, we look at this and we think about it and we consider it and we say, okay, we know what Jesus is talking about. Certainly, he's talking about going to the cross. But that is not what the disciples fully understand here. They are not fully comprehending the fact that Jesus is getting ready to go away. But then he says this, ye shall seek me. So wherever Jesus is going, he tells them, you're going to seek after me. But then he says this, but where I'm going right now, you cannot come. He tells them about something that this striking term that he uses, little children, tells us that there is something about Jesus's love for his disciples. It has a different tone behind it now. Now he's dealing with them as those who are in that truly that inner circle of Christ. They don't fully get the fact that he's getting ready to fully announce now all that's getting ready to happen. The cross is now on the horizon. But remember, as we've learned, the disciples were not looking toward the cross. In other words, they didn't have a countdown clock going that it's T minus 10 days until Jesus goes to the cross. They're fully unaware of what Jesus is really getting ready to do. Again, we have such a privilege to be able to look back and know, well, if I would have been sitting there with Jesus, I would have known what he meant. The disciples didn't fully comprehend. As a matter of fact, for the most part, the disciples most likely thought Jesus must be going on a journey somewhere. He's traveling somewhere that he can't tell us. That's what their minds would have brought them to. So they didn't fully understand what the Lord was teaching them, but they would later know. But before he begins to show that, as he expresses his affection, he expresses their concern, he's also understanding something about their weakness. When he uses the term little children, you're going to seek me or you shall seek me, he's hinting at the reality that what's getting ready to happen, the disciples are going to need me. That ye shall seek me. Jesus is removal from them was going to leave them really in complete disarray. Everywhere they had gone, Jesus had been there. And now Jesus isn't going to be there anymore. If you had followed and been with someone for as long as they had and suddenly they weren't there anymore, you kind of would have the feeling, I'm not really sure what to do. What do we do now? But it was going to be worse because as he disappeared from them, the persecution and the attacks were going to increase by those who knew that the disciples were followers of Christ. Now imagine your master leaving and now being under attack and you don't know what to do. See, Jesus is using a little bit of foreshadowing here with them. He's, he's telling them things of what's coming that they don't even realize yet. Again, we know it because we're looking back. But using this term little children, and you will seek me. And while I am with you, he's expressing something to them. He's expressing to them that he's only going to be with them for just a little while longer, but he doesn't really, they don't really understand what this all means. 
He says, where I go, you cannot come. So now I say to you. There were Jews he said the same thing to. He told them, you cannot come to where I am because of your unbelief. But what Jesus is getting ready to do, and we'll see this next week, he's not telling them that you cannot ever come because he's going to tell them, I'm going to prepare a place for you. And where I go, so that you may be there also. He doesn't tell that to the unbelieving Jews. He's telling that to his inner circle of disciples who were followers of him. He says, listen, I'm going away, but where I'm going, you're going to be there with me in just a little while. But until then, understand what's getting ready to happen. That's what we'll look at in John 14 next week. But in John 13, 34, instead of giving them the synopsis of what's coming, in other words, he, he, he puts down this cryptic thought and our humanity, our curiosity says, okay, tell me what this means. That's not what he does. He says, a new commandment I give you. And notice that word, a new phrase, a new commandment. I give unto you that ye love one another as I have loved you, that ye also love one another. It's repetitive. Instead of explaining to them what's getting ready to happen, he says, here's what you need to know. I'm going to give you a new commandment, that you love one another. But here's the thing. That's not a new commandment. We know that because the book of Leviticus, let's turn back to the Old Testament book of Leviticus. This was already part of the law. But so why does he announce this as a new commandment? And that's very important for us to see. But let's look at Leviticus 19 and look at verse number 18. And we will see here that this has been a part of, this has been a part of the law. And this is, this is in the context of the laws concerning our personal conduct, how we are to act towards one another. And again, remember who Jesus is telling. He's telling the disciples to do something, to love one another. Here's what Leviticus 19, 18 says. Thou shalt not avenge nor bear any grudge against the children of thy people, but thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. I am the Lord. So it is interesting that Jesus tells them, I'm going to give you a new commandment. However, if you go to 2 John, so I'll go all the way to nearly the end of the Bible, go to 2 John. John writes in 2 John, one, that this commandment to love one another, they've had from the beginning. All right, 2 John chapter 1, verses 5 through 6. 2 John chapter 1, verses 5 through 6. The Bible says, And now I beseech thee, lady, not as though I wrote a new commandment unto thee, but that which we had from the beginning, that we love one another. And this is love, that we walk after his commandments. This is the commandment that as ye have heard from the beginning, ye should walk in it. So here Jesus says, we have a new commandment, but yet 2 John tells us that this new commandment, we've had it from the beginning. Why is it called new then? We often think of something new as something that we've never known, something we've never seen something that's never been tried. He uses the word new here 
in the fact not new by its age. Now don't miss this. This is, this is key. It's not because of its age. It's because of the newness of its excellence. In other words, what it's really about. It's not new because of its age, but new because of its excellence. Excellence, why? Why is it excellent? It's now going to be more clearly explained than it's ever been before. In other words, this love one another, like Leviticus 19 said, had a certain ring of duty to it, right? You must love one another. You must follow the law. This is your law of personal conduct. You have to do this. But now here's the Lord himself saying, I'm setting before you, I'm setting before you a new, excellent, perfect example of love. Again, the disciples don't know what he's getting ready to do, but he's telling them, I want you to love one another as I've loved you. I'm getting ready in just a matter of days to go to a cross and I'm going to demonstrate to you a perfect example of excellent love. And I want you to love each other the way I'm going to love you by going to this cross. This is not some kind of emotional sappy love he's talking about. He is talking about the excellence of the example of the love that Christ has for them. Look what he says. Love one another as I have loved you, that ye also love one another. How do we love one another? We love as brethren, as part of the same family. We love as children who have the same father. What does that love look like? In a relationship, that love looks like forgiveness. It looks like forbearance. It looks like patience. It looks like preferring one another, humbling yourself. It means love each other even though you are weak and even though you are imperfect. And by the way, we're all weak and we're all imperfect. And yet the kind of love that Christ has for us looks beyond all of that weakness, all that imperfection, and says, I still love you. Oh, imagine... If married couples and spouses got that understanding, we are to love in spite of imperfection and weaknesses. Because here's a promise. Your spouse has weaknesses. Your spouse has imperfections. You have weaknesses. You have imperfections. As good as you think you are, you are imperfect. And your spouse loves you anyway. Now this is important. Because the leader of the group, Peter, is going to speak up as if he doesn't have an imperfection. And that Peter is self-sufficient in himself. And again, don't give Peter a hard time because there's a Peter in every single one of us. That's why we get so many examples of him is because he relates most closely to us. I love how the holier than now stands back and says, that Peter, I'd say he had all kinds of problems. You would be him. You would do exactly the same things that he did. And Jesus is trying to get to the point of something here. Christ loves all of his own, whether they are rich, whether they're poor, whether they're old, whether they're young, whether they're weak, whether they're strong, whether they're greater, whether they're less. But he doesn't just love in word. He loves in deed, but more importantly, he loves in truth. 
So when we see the love of Christ, that's the only picture of true love. So if someone says, what is true love? The answer is Christ. Jesus Christ is true love. It's not the couple that's your perfect example. It's Christ is the love. Love one another as I have loved you. Now, he gives a reason or a purpose. He says, verse 35, by this, by what? The love that you have towards one another, you love each other like I have loved you. By this shall all men know that you are my disciples. Not just other believers, but all men will know that this is a sign or a, what, is, what signifies you are one of my disciples. Now, we read that, but you remember that the identifying mark means it's going to put a mark on them to be under persecution, right? Because it should be obvious that when all this comes, you are one of mine. Again, we know the story because we know what Peter ultimately does. Peter had one of the distinguishing marks of being a follower, but what does Peter do? Peter says, I don't know him. The problem is everybody knew Peter knew him because he had a distinguishing mark on him. Again, not a physical mark. Jesus says they'll know because you, are, you have love for one another. So, verse 36, Simon Peter said unto him, <laughs> Jesus says, here's the new commandment, love. Peter says, and I'm paraphrasing, where are you going? That's in my version. Where are you going? Where, whether goest thou? It's not our modern English. But that's what he says. He says, where are you going? But Jesus has just given this commandment. Love one another. And Peter says, I want to know where you're going. Jesus answered him and says, whether I go... Thou canst not follow me now, but thou shalt follow me afterwards. What in the world does Jesus mean? Jesus answers him, says, where I'm going, you can't go with me now, but you will follow me afterwards. If you think this is a pleasant trip that he's talking about, it's not what he's talking about. He's talking about where I'm going, I'm going to death, I'm going to the cross. He's telling Peter, Peter, you're gonna, you are going to meet the same fate. Where I'm going is to the cross. But he's also talking about a promise that goes beyond that. I'm going to prepare that place, John 14 tells us. And you're going to follow me there afterward too. But in the meantime, Jesus is having to deal with a problem that Peter has and a problem that every single one of us have, and that is a higher opinion of ourselves than we ought to have. Because here's Peter's issue. It says in verse 37, Peter said unto him, Lord, why cannot I follow thee now? I will lay down my life for thy sake. Peter has no idea what Jesus is talking about, but Peter in his high opinion of himself, his own self-sufficiency says, Lord, why can't I go? Wherever you're going, I'll lay my life down for you. You ever heard the cliche, famous last words? That's what these are. Peter's announcing to the Lord, wherever you're doing, I don't know what it is. I'll go with you. I have no problems going with you. But understand something about this. That this new commandment that Jesus gives them, 
this new attitude, this love towards one another, this, this demonstration of the excellency that's found in Christ, the distinguishing mark of a believer, the love that Christ is now displaying to his own children, this is this genuine love. Peter's most concerned about not the, gen, not the genuine love. He's more concerned about where Jesus is going and why he's being excluded from it. Peter speaks in self-sufficiency when he says, I will lay down my life. Now, let's think about what Peter's actually declaring he will do. First of all, he says, I will. I will lay down my life for thy sake. Jesus had taught there's no, there's no greater example of love than a man who will lay down his life for his friends, right? It's, it's, a, it's a great sacrifice. And yet, when we think about his, his forwardness here, saying, I will do all this, Lord, Jesus doesn't rebuke him per se, but he asks him a question to respond to his question. Jesus answered in verse 38, Wilt thou lay down thy life for my sake? Now, if we look at this, here we need to understand a couple of things. Of course, number one, Peter has no understanding that Jesus is talking about his own death, his own burial, and his own resurrection and ascension. He doesn't know that yet. He may be thinking that Christ is going on some distant journey, Peter just simply wants to go as a travel companion. He's, it's, it's simple. The Lord replies, where I'm going, Peter, you can't follow. But the truth is that when Peter's work is done, after Jesus goes to the cross, is buried, raises from the dead, ascends back to the right hand of the Father, Peter's work that, Jesus, that God does through Peter just begins. If you study the pre-crucifixion, pre-crucified Christ, and you study Peter before, and then you compare him to the Peter post-crucifixion, resurrection, and ascension, the man's totally different. Those, those things of self-sufficiency, those things of self-confidence that he had before Christ went to the cross, they're gone after the cross. You don't see Peter, pardon the expression, putting his foot in his mouth anymore about how sufficient he is. And yet, by way of application, isn't that just like us? Today, we say we trust God, but there are things even today you are trusting in your own self-sufficiency, thinking you can actually do it when only one that can do it is Christ. You have a very high opinion of yourself today that says, I can accomplish anything. I can do whatever needs to be done. Peter was not saying, Lord, in the power of you, I'll lay down my life. He said, I'll do it because I'm just that kind of guy. I can handle it. Oh, it's one thing. You, it's, you know, and, and I'm going to speak for men. Men are so good at this. I mean, you put, a, you put men around a, a, a coffee station, you put them in a room, and the, you know, you've heard about the fish stories. I mean, we are so brave and so courageous and so bold, and yet we see a spider and we would run from it. I mean, I'm serious. We talk and talk and talk about how tough we are, how we'd take a bullet, we would, we would die, we lay down our life. Listen, 
You, you couldn't do that in your own self-sufficiency. Because when, when it came down to doing it, that's a whole different story. Everybody is self-sufficient until the crisis comes. If you have nothing going on in your life, your self-sufficiency is doing just fine. You're getting along just fine. But when that crisis knocks at your door, which is what Jesus is talking about, when I disappear from you and I'm no longer leading you and guiding you and sitting with you and teaching you, let's see how well your self-sufficiency is then. That's what, that's what Jesus is telling his disciples. He's telling them to love one another. All of this is getting ready to take place. And instead of Peter being satisfied with the Lord's answer and to accept the words of the Lord, Peter had a very high, prideful opinion of his own personal devotion to Christ. We all think we're the most devoted servant to Christ, don't we? We think, there's none like me. I am mo I'm more devoted to Christ than the rest of my family. I'm the most devoted uh, servant of Christ in my church. I, I am the picture of what everybody would... If, if there could be a picture of godliness, that's me. Now, we don't say that, hopefully, although I've met people who actually have proclaimed that. Said, listen, if you want to see perfect godliness, just follow me. I'm not saying that. Don't follow me. I can't, even, I can't even remain patient when a mower won't start. Praise God I was here by myself yesterday. The realities of these things. We have such a high opinion of who we are. That's what Peter's problem is here. Jesus wants them to love one another, and Peter's got such a high opinion. He's like, no, I'm going to do this because I'm, I'm the one you can count on, Lord. We see that this high opinion, Peter doesn't even realize how high his opinion is because here's what he doesn't know. He doesn't know the courage he's going to need in the face of the enemy he's getting ready to face. Oh, it's easy to be courageous when you don't know who the enemy is. But when Peter finds out who the enemy is, Peter is going to deny he knows Christ because a young lady asked him. Nothing to do with male and female, but that's how high his opinion was that the first time he's asked, do you know him? He says, I don't know him. As a matter of fact, he says it three times, and each time he gets a little bit more emphatic about it, and he says, I, I don't have anything to do with him. Now, that's the same Peter who's telling Jesus to his face, I'll lay down my life for you. That's having a too high of an opinion of yourself. So Peter had a high opinion of his courage, but he also, number two, had a high opinion of his willingness to follow Christ, even if it cost him his life. When, Peter's, when Peter was put to the fire, he denied he knew him. Every one of you here today can say, I would die for Christ. I'd follow Christ anywhere. You can, you can read accounts and you can go on websites like Voice of the Martyrs and you can read about uh, people across the world who were dying for their faith. And you're saying, listen, if I, if I was facing that, that terrorist knife, I was facing that, that terrorist bullet, if I was facing uh, to be executed, if I didn't renounce my faith, it's easy for us to sit and say, listen, put me in that situation, put me right there, and I will never deny Christ. Be careful. 
It's real easy to say that in the comfort of this little building. But understand, there are people who are actually dying for this faith that we're preaching about today. Dying for it. Many of them willingly. Many of them without resistance. Many of them without a fight. Many of them simply because they would not renounce the name of Christ. Yet Peter is an example of a man that when he's, when he's put to the fire, he responds with denial. Now, a lot of people say, no, 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 you've got the story wrong. Doesn't Peter take a sword out of his sheath and doesn't he chop off a man's ear? The problem is he wasn't so much defending Christ as he was defending himself. See, Peter is even self-sufficient in the garden because that's when Jesus has to tell Peter, put the sword away. Because what I'm getting ready to do It's not going to require a sword. I am going willingly. They're not going to have to apprehend me. I'm going to allow myself to be taken. I'm going to allow myself to be crucified. Jesus, again, is saying all these things before it actually happens. And Peter is with this opinion of himself. Again, Jesus, when he answers him in verse 38, will thou lay down my life? For my sake. See, there's a difference there. Will you lay down your life for my sake? Now, when Christ asked him this, will you lay down your life for my sake? He was not questioning. Now, get this in our mind. He was not questioning Peter's love or his sincerity. So here's what we do know. Peter loved the Lord. And I believe Peter was sincere. I believe you and I that are saved, you truly do love the Lord. And when you say you love the Lord, and when you say you will die for him, you are sincere. The problem is, as Peter said these things in his own strength and his own sufficiency, not in the power of God. So what is Jesus doing with this interaction with Peter? Peter, because he has this high opinion of himself, the Lord is attempting and is going to, he will be successful in this, destroying Peter's self-sufficiency. Folks, there is nothing that will bring you to the end of yourself than Jesus Christ. You will never come to the end of yourself until you understand the love of Christ. You will never come to the end of yourself until you understand that Savior who was stricken, smitten, and afflicted. And that he was enduring those things, not because of guilt in himself, but he was doing that because of the guilt in you. You and I have no reason to boast about anything in our life but we have all things to boast in, in Christ. See, the Bible doesn't tell us don't boast. It just says don't boast in yourself. Don't boast in your own sufficiency. But you can boast in Christ and you can never boast too much. You could spend your entire work week today 
bragging at work week all week and next month and years to come in your workplace and brag on Christ all you want and you're not violating the, the biblical principle. Boast on yourself and you're proving the point that Jesus is trying to prove to Peter. This high opinion of your own self-sufficiency. Our self-sufficiency is not just in our day-to-day life, but there's still a hint of our own self-sufficiency in having some part in our salvation. There's nothing in you sufficient to pay what is due. You say, what if I gave to the church? What if I had a, I gave all the money that I have to the church. It won't buy you anything. You say, but your little church, you need some help. It won't do anything. If you're trying to gain some kind of sufficient, it is only in Christ alone. My sufficiency in every aspect of my life is because of Christ. My sufficiency in my salvation is because of Christ. Peter's self-sufficiency was the very issue that Paul or Peter was having exposed here. Now, this is not the first time that Peter had done this. If you go to Matthew 26, uh, verse number 33, Matthew 26, verse 33, and there are various times, and again, when we read the, the various authors, we're sometimes reading them from a different perspective. So the story doesn't mean there's contradiction, but it's, it's the way it's worded. But in Matthew 26, verses 31 through 35, it's referred to as Peter's vow of loyalty. Now, Matthew uses a different terminology, and there's a little bit more information here. Uh, The Bible says, verse 31, Matthew 26, Then saith Jesus unto them, All ye shall be offended because of me this night. For it is written, I will smite the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock shall be scattered abroad. But after I am risen again, I will go before you into Galilee. Peter answered and said unto him, Though all men shall be offended because of thee, yet will I never be offended. Jesus said unto him, Verily I say unto thee that this night before the cock crow, thou shalt deny me thrice. Peter said unto him, Though I should die with thee, yet will I not deny thee. Likewise also said all the disciples. Matthew gives a little bit more insight there. Peter said it, but Matthew also suggests that in this account, in this account of it, all the other disciples said the same thing. Isn't it strange that when Jesus goes to the cross, there's only one there, and it's John and Jesus' mother. Where are, the other, where are the others? They all took a vow of loyalty, yet they ended up denying him. Luke 22, verse 31. Luke 22, we'll work our way back to John 13, but Luke 21, verse 31. Or Luke 22, I'm sorry. Luke 22, verse 31. And this is Jesus giving some advice, we'll call it. And the Lord said, Simon, Simon, or that could be said, Peter, Peter, behold, Satan hath desired to have you, that he may sift you as wheat. Now, what I want you to understand here is Jesus doesn't say, but have no fear, all right? I will rescue you from the sifting. Is that what the Bible says? No, notice Jesus' words but I have prayed for thee 
that thy faith fail not. And when thou art converted, strengthen thy brethren. Jesus is not telling him, I'm going to protect you and keep you from this. He said, I'm going to pray for you as you go through this because Satan's going to have you and he's going to sift you as wheat. See, we, look, we like the Jesus that says, don't worry, when trial comes, I'm going to come flying into your rescue and I'm going to deliver you from it. Jesus says no such thing. Now, he does have a promise that Jesus says, I will pray. But he says, when you come through this, strengthen the brethren. See, the trial, the fire, it's easy to say we'll never deny. But Peter's going to go right through the flame. And look what Peter says. And he said unto him, Lord, I am ready to go with thee both into prison and to death. Go back to the pre-crucifixion Peter. That doesn't happen before Jesus Christ goes to the cross. After the fact, then Peter does in fact end up in prison. Peter does end up in fact being killed for being a follower of Christ. What happened in between the pre-crucifixion Peter and the post-crucifixion Peter? His self-sufficiency was destroyed. He was no longer Peter the strong. Now he's Peter the humble, the weak, who only finds his strength in Christ alone. Our strength, folks, is not in ourselves. There is no Hey, pull yourself up by your own strength. Pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. Just, just strengthen yourself. Bow up and fight the battle. You can't fight the battle. And, and, and you are, and pardon this word, but you are crazy this morning if you think you can even go toe-to-toe with the devil or one of his demons by yourself. You can't do it. It is only in the power of God. This confidence that Peter was expressing didn't mean that Peter didn't love Christ. And it didn't mean that he wasn't sincere. But what it did mean is that he was finding his strength and his sufficiency in himself instead of finding his sufficiency in Christ. Now, don't turn there, but I want to just draw it. Well, you can turn there if you can get there. Matthew 26. I'm going to fast forward just a little bit. Remember what Jesus had told him. Matthew 26, verses 69 through 75, this is Peter's denial. The Bible tells us here that now Peter sat without in the palace, and a damsel came unto him, saying, Thou also was with Jesus of Galilee. But he denied before them all, saying, I know not what thou sayest. And when he was gone out into the porch, another maid saw him and said unto them that were there, this fellow was also with Jesus of Nazareth. And again, he denied with an oath. I do not know the man. So Peter goes from saying, I don't know what you're saying to I don't even know him. And after a while came unto him they that stood by and said to Peter, Surely thou also art one of them, for thy speech bereath thee, or betrays you. Then began he to curse and to swear, saying, I know not the man. And immediately 
the cock crew. And Peter remembered, it's instant, remembered the word of Jesus, which said unto him, before the cock crow, thou shalt deny me thrice. And he went out and wept bitterly. If you would have read earlier in that chapter, for example, if you go back to verse 58 of Matthew 26, Jesus is standing before Caiaphas. You see that in verse 57. They laid hold on Jesus, led him away to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and others were assembled. But Peter followed him afar off. Folks, you understand what's happening? As the fire and the crisis increased, Peter started pulling back further and further. I want you to understand something. I'm not, I'm not trying to do anything more than just show you what's on the, even the horizon today. This is already happening today. There is a slow deterioration of people who once claimed to be followers of Christ who are very slowly now, they are just following afar off. They want to be in close contact enough to get the benefits of Jesus. They want to be close enough to get the benefits of all that comes with it. But I don't want to be fully committed to him. I'm not ready to lay down my life for him. I would dare say most, if not many believers, are in the afar off position. They just want Christ, when the crisis comes, to get them out of it. Peter did not get removed from the crisis. And as a follower of Christ, there is no guarantee you are going to be removed from the fire. There is no guarantee that Satan's not going to sift you as wheat. There is no guarantee that you're not going to lose your life for Christ's sake. The question is, where is your sufficiency? Because if you're trusting in yourself that you'll be strong enough in that day, I can already tell you how it's going to go. You're going to run. And so am I. See, these disciples are facing and will face what you and I probably won't face. We've said this many, many times. And in this country, this is the safest place to be a believer in the whole wide world. There's no place safer. And we think we're doing something because we show up at church freely. When there are others who understand that their gathering together to worship Christ might that very day cost them their life. Why did Jesus tell his disciples to love one another? Because of what they were getting ready to face. This was not just love, emotional, sappy love, just to, hey, care for one another. This was something that was going to require the love of one another because of what they were getting ready to face. And we understand here that once the Lord, again, he, in this passage, he shows us that the Lord Jesus himself knew all things. He's foretelling just like he had done with Judas that one of you is a betrayer. He does the same thing with Peter. He tells Peter, you are going to betray me. And if you would have been sitting in that room, you would have thought the same thing. There's no way Peter's going to deny the Lord. There's no way we're going to deny the Lord. How could somebody who walked so close with the Lord, been so devoted, loved him, and was sincere... 
The disciples enjoyed unspeakable privilege of sitting at the feet of Jesus, and yet when the crisis came, they were gone. Yet in our devotion today, we might have a high opinion of our own devotion today that says, I'll stand when the crisis comes. Remember, Jesus had to warn the disciples, watch and pray lest ye enter into temptation. What was the temptation? Self-sufficiency. It's really incredible. The temptation that you won't, you won't need me. And yet, here Jesus, as he announces to Peter, as incredible as it might appear, Jesus foresaw it all. He knew it all. He knew the outcome. He knew how it was going to go down. He knew Peter would deny three times. He knew Peter that instead of laying down his life, would that very night try to save his own life by saying, I don't know him. Let's finish with John 18. I want us to see this. John 18, verse 25. And again, this takes us back to the servants and the ear that he cut off. John 18, verse 25, And Simon Peter stood and warmed himself. They said therefore unto him, Art not thou also one of his disciples? He denied it and said, I am not. One of the servants of the high priest, being his kinsman, whose ear Peter cut off, saith, Did not I see thee in the garden with him? Peter then denied again, and immediately the cock crew. Even in the face of witnesses who said, we know, Peter, we know who you are. Peter said, I don't even know the man. Here's the amazing part, and I want us to get this. In spite of that denial, the Lord did not cast Peter away for good. Listen, I don't know today, you may have already done this. You, I, I'm, as a matter of fact, I'm sure you've done it. I'm sure at some point in your Christian life, you have either in word or a deed denied the Lord. You didn't speak when you should have spoken. I'm including me. You didn't say what you should have said. You, did, you, you maybe even at some point denied him. Take comfort in knowing that Peter was not cast off. That wasn't Peter's end. Now, Peter went on and did not have a glorious ending to his life by man's standards. But as tradition says, the Bible doesn't say it, Peter was crucified on a cross. It's historical documents that say, but as they were crucifying him, he said, I am not worthy to be crucified the way my Lord was crucified. Turn that cross upside down and he was crucified upside down. He said, I'm not even worthy to even die the way my Savior died. That is the difference between Peter's self-sufficient in himself and his sufficiency in Christ. Listen, he loved Peter unto the end. Jesus Christ loves his children unto the end. After the resurrection, Jesus sought out Peter and restored him back to the fellowship. And that's where he asked in the series of questions, Peter, do you love me? And that whole interaction goes back and forth. And he says, feed my sheep. Truly, 
such love of Christ and the power of the gospel, folks, this passes our limited understanding. There's no way you and I can comprehend this kind of love that would still love even after a denial. That's true love. That's the new commandment now being explained in a more excellent way. I pray that we might fully understand not just what happened to Peter for the sake of history, but what it means for us. And I pray that our self-sufficiency would be completely destroyed today. Our sufficiency is in Christ. Let's bow together in prayer. Father, we thank you for the lesson from your word this morning. Lord, I needed to be reminded personally, Lord, of how unworthy and how unfaithful and how unloyal I have been and I will be. Lord, we're not here today to make a vow, to make an oath that we and ourselves, we, we know we cannot keep. We could all today pray a prayer and pray that we're going to be faithful and we will never deny you, but we would be guilty of the very same sin of self-sufficiency. Lord, it is only through you that we can accomplish anything. It is only through you that we will be able to stand when the crisis of our faith comes. Father, I'm so grateful that you did not cast Peter away. Lord, that even in his denial and even in his refusal to acknowledge that he was one of your own, you restored him into the fellowship. Father, I don't know where we are today as believers, but Lord, if, if this is, has occurred in us, I pray today that, Lord, we would repent of that self-sufficiency and that we would find all of our hope and all of our strength in Christ alone. But Father, I also pray for that one, two, maybe more today that is trusting in themselves for their own salvation. They're trusting that they're, they're sufficient in the amount of good works they can do. They're sufficient uh, in, in, in the, the charitable uh, acts that they do. Lord, they're, they're trusting in a baptism. They're trusting in a, a church membership. I pray today, Lord, that we would see that that is not sufficient to be acceptable before a holy God. Our sufficiency is only found in the imputed righteousness of Christ. Jesus Christ alone is our sufficiency. I pray if there be one here today, that today they would repent and believe the gospel of Jesus Christ. Father, thank you for saving us. Lord, thank you for never casting us away, even with all of our faults and our imperfections and our weaknesses. And we praise you and thank you for it. And it's in Christ's name I pray, amen.